and welcome to Intellectual Property Magazine's podcast. I'm Ben Modecki and this is our end of year special. Despite the absurdity that was 2020, there's been a plethora of IP changes, developments and issues across the world. We've caught up with leading experts from the UK, US and EU to find out what they feel were the most impactful developments over the past 12 months. First off, I crossed the pond to speak with SCOTUS Stalwart and Covington and Burling partner, Beth Brinkman. Well, hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. There were a lot of interesting developments in intellectual property in the US this past year. I focus a lot on the Supreme Court and there there were seven cases in the intellectual property area, which is a lot for the Supreme Court. They only take about 70 cases. In the trademark area, they had a big case about booking.com, where the Patent and Trademark Office had tried to say .com was always generic and could not be eligible for trademark. But the Supreme Court ruled to the contrary, said it depends on consumer perception. In the copyright area, the Supreme Court upheld the immunity of states against damages in copyright cases. And I have to say that was a really fun case about Blackbeard's pirate ship, the Queen Anne, and videotaping of it off the coast of uh, North Carolina. Then in patent, that's an area the Supreme Court has been particularly busy in, and it really has a lot of impact, obviously, across the country. That case involved the Thrive versus Click to Call case this past term, involved uh, further developments about the PTAB, the Patent Trial and Appeals Board, which is a relatively new entity where the patents can be challenged post-issuance before the agency. And that ruling, again, limited the right to seek judicial review when the PTAB institutes that kind of inter partis review over a patent. That PTAB area is really one that has fostered a lot of litigation because of the lower courts and the agency trying to figure out the scope of that proceeding before the agency to reconsider patents. That's a really big area. Beth, how impactful will the death of Justice Ginsburg be on USIP cases? What might Justice Coney bring to the bench. Justice Ginsburg played a pretty significant role in intellectual property in the patent area. She was very supportive of the authority of the PTAB, which I was just mentioning, which is a very hot topic for litigation. And she had written the Nautilus opinion, which was a very important opinion on indefiniteness, for example. In the trademark area, she also was active. She wrote that Booking.com case I just mentioned. And in particular in copyright, she was a strong supporter of copyright protections. She'd written a landmark case, the Ticini case back in 2001, that prohibited the the database republishing of of copyrighted articles without getting a transfer of a copyright. She'd also written the Eldred case, another landmark copyright case, upholding the constitutionality of the Copyright Term Extension Act. One of the reasons Justice Ginsburg probably had such interest in copyright is because her daughter is a very prominent academic in that area. Her son's a music producer, so I'm sure she had a lot of interest in intellectual property generally, but she did write a lot in that area. Justice Coney Barrett has written in the areas of trademark and trade secret, for example, when she was on the Court of Appeals. She also sat on some cases involving copyright. But as far as the general thrust of those cases, there isn't much to discern from that. They were often statutory cases. And Justice Coney Barrett does have a view of statutory interpretation that's very along the lines, I think, of Justice Scalia, for example, who she and 
invokes, very text-based. So that can be a prediction or expectation of how she will approach it. Of course, as a Court of Appeals judge, other than on the federal circuit, she doesn't really have any insights on patent. But do you think that her intellectual property jurisprudence will be affected by her view on statutory interpretation. Also, her views on federal agency authority, again, getting back to the PTAB agency authority and those issues that will be litigated in the future on that. Beth, are there any US IP developments or cases that you feel our listeners should be paying attention to next year? There are a couple I'm looking at. One has to do with the issue of the the PTAB and the post-grant reviews, the inter partes review and the role that that continues to play in the ability of challenges to patents, even while they're being litigated in, in the trial court. And a couple observations on that. There's the Arthrex case that's pending before the Supreme Court that challenges the appointment of those administrative patent judges and says they were not appropriately appointed because they were not appointed by the president. They were only appointed by the head of the agency. And this has to do with the provision in our constitution that distinguishes between principal officers and inferior officers. Kind of depends on the the higher authority you have, then you have to be appointed by the president. And without getting into the weeds on that, the federal circuit had said that they were principal officers, so they were not appropriate appropriately appointed. But the federal circuit fixed that by saying, we'll read this one part of the statute is not applying. They can then be removed more easily. And then it's okay. They're inferior officers. Whether the Supreme Court will agree with that remains to be seen. And even if they say that the judges were not appropriately appointed, what remedy, how they'll fix that, whether they'll follow the path of the federal circuit is one that's open. And there's a lot of debate about what impact that could have on pending cases. In the copyright area, there's one big case that's at the Supreme Court that's been ongoing for quite a while, Google v. Oracle. It's about whether or not certain types of software code declarations are eligible for copyright protection. That'll be a very big decision by the Supreme Court. And there's a second question in that case about fair use. The other thing I would say that we're looking at this coming year in the intellectual property area in the United States is, of course, the change in administration. And that will likely bring a change in the director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Andre Yanku currently is the director. And typically, that position is replaced. A new director would be brought in by the new administration. We'll see what happens. I'm not going to predict on that, but that's certainly something to keep an eye on because that's a critical position. Uh, The director has a lot to do with, obviously, the procedures and policies at the PTO. Next up, Gail Burrow of Linklaters outlines her views on this year's IP changes from across the EU. I'd say we are seeing uh, stronger manifestations of the tension existing between IP and competition law, and it's particularly acute uh, in the field of SEP litigation. SEP are standard essential patents, and there's been a, a, a huge amount of cases uh, around the world, but especially in the EU, on how, how to best resolve uh, resolve those, uh, those disputes. And one of the uh, landmark cases that came up this year was from the UK in NY Planet Huawei uh, case. And while this this decision brought some clarity, I can I can predict there will be more decisions to come, maybe different ones. And very recently, questions have been referred to the Court of Justice of the EU. So this is definitely not the end of the story. So what kind of friend developments or changes could we potentially be seeing next year in the EU? So definitely, uh, I, I would expect some uh, developments outside the sector of 
mobile phones and telecoms. And that's because the legal principles at stake are not restricted to that type of devices. And with the uh, emergence of connected devices all around, I mean, in, in Germany, it's more about connected cars, but there's a, a strong move to have connected devices at home and also in the health sector to monitor patients and follow them from a medical perspective. We definitely are surrounded by connected devices and whether SEP patent holders are going to target other items is probably a certainty. We should definitely expect further uh, litigation starting beyond uh, the realm of uh, telecoms. Gail, you're based in Paris. Can you outline for our listeners any major French IP developments? I know there's been some important changes on the legislative side, for example. The uh, one remarkable judgment uh, came out uh, just in September in the pharma field where the Eli Lilly Group obtained an award of damages in a patent litigation in an amount of 28 million euros. That is definitely record setting and clearly shows that the Paris first instance court does not shy away from enforcing IP and patents. So that's uh, that's one thing. And in terms of legislative framework, you're right, there's been uh, the implementation of the so-called PACT law that took effect this spring. And it's a very ambitious uh, change to French patent law. You know, formerly it was fairly easy to obtain a patent granted in France. And that was a system that a number of applicants took advantage of because they were filing a lot, lot, lot and then having, you know, massive portfolios. Conversely, there wasn't a very high level of scrutiny uh, when the French patent office used to examine those applications. And for the new law now requires the patent office to actually examine inventive step, probably in an EPO-like manner. And the, the new law also implemented uh, opposition proceedings against patents in France. So that's also very new. And it's also very similar to what we know uh, at the European Patent Office, although there are some differences. So it's still too early to take some, to draw some conclusions on this. And indeed, uh, the, the, the first decisions could be expected next year and all IP practitioners in France are going to be watching that space. This year has been an absolute roller coaster, especially for the UPC side of things. Any thoughts on how this might play out in the coming year? No, absolutely. Your your characterization of a roller coaster is absolutely accurate. I've been very excited and to be honest, a bit surprised at the time the UPC agreement was signed because this, uh, this project, or at least this type of project, has been in the background for the entirety of my career career in IP. And so I was very glad to see that it was moving forward. And this year, there have been ups and downs. Let's see what happens in, in Germany next year. I understand the, the ratification process has been restarted, but it's also very possible that new challenges will come up. And can you outline for us what you're looking forward to in 2021? Uh, 2020 has been a bit choppy, not just for me, but I guess for anyone around the globe. But definitely look uh, forward to being back in court, but I can't complain too much because I was there yesterday morning as it happens. So we are pretty glad that the French courts uh, during the second lockdown uh, are now operating and in-person hearings are 
indeed taking place. So we show up with our robe and with our face mask. We really hope that they, um, this is uh, this is permanent now and that we, we can keep having our cases moving forward. It's not just for us as you know advisors, it's, it's for our litigants and companies, of course. So next year, one of the things I might be uh, watching for is the possible uh, first implementations of the SPC manufacturing waiver. This uh, came into force last year, but I haven't heard of any case so far. So given the time spans, it's, it's quite possible that uh, the first few cases will emerge next year. And finally, we return to the UK, the home of IPM, to speak with Baker McKenzie's Jason Rayburn to talk Brexit, AI, FRAND and more. Well, there's been quite a lot and obviously it's been uh, quite an interesting year um, with lots going on. Despite the pandemic, there's been a lot happening in the UK in relation to IP with quite a few significant, significant developments of notes. And the first would be the unwired planet and combined cases. And clearly we now have a bit of certainty on the extent to which UK courts have jurisdiction to decide global license rates for portfolios of patents. I think that's been dealt with in one of the previous podcasts. I won't go into much detail on that one, um, but I think that is a particular uh, development of note in 2020 that we now have that clarity. The second for me is is in the field of trademarks, actually, and that's in relation to Sky and Skykick. And there, if you recall, if you rewind back to 2019, the IP world had a bit of a scare when we had the Attorney General's opinion in relation to Skykick, where effectively we, we had a bit of worry as to whether a number of trademarks uh, on registered would be rendered invalid in their entirety. And that was on the basis of the sort of rational now in that opinion that said trademark registers need to be cleared up and need to be more precise with a lot of clutter removed and the overly broad specifications had a dissuasive effect on competitors entering the market. We since saw at the beginning of 2020 that the ECJ didn't quite go as far as that, as far as the opinion uh, that the Attorney General handed down and effectively that the consequences of trademark proprietors seeking to overextend their protection should only result in the narrowing of that scope rather than the total loss of the trademark. And then obviously in the UK uh, in April we then had the application of the ECJ's ruling by Lord Justice Arnold in, in April 2020, uh, looking at issues such as bad faith. And, and they're probably not as, as much an impact as we thought it would be. We're going to see the practical impact of that over time, and particularly in relation to umbrella terms and the drafting of specifications for trademarks. You know, thinking to corporate transactions, for example, if a specification has been drafted and is quite old and it's overly broad, that affects the pricing or the metrics in relation to that portfolio. Will there be greater scrutiny on the value attributed to that trademark or not? I think that's going to be interesting to see in practice. I think also, you know, following on from this case, it be interesting to see whether we see divergence in practice over time in the UK, even given the UK exit from the European Union, whether the bar to prove bad faith uh, is going to be higher, lower, different compared to that in the EU. And that's going to be quite interesting as well. I think related to that is you know the extent of interrogatories into the commercial rationale for trademark applicants seeking protection for certain goods and services. So we can all imagine a you know, different companies in the market who started out doing one thing, but very much ended up being successful in something very, very different. So fluctuating business models, I think that's going to be a very interesting thing to, to see how that plays out in practice over time. And my third development for 2020, I thought was quite significant and interesting. It is more, not necessarily a development in the field of IP, but I think it's just an interesting nod to what happens in relation to trade secrets and breach of confidence We've seen a number of those in 2020. I think one that's particularly interesting and of note is the Racing Partnership Limited and Sports Information Services, a recent judgment by the Court of Appeal. And there, again, I think we're starting to see this trend, um, which again isn't necessarily new, but is quite a nuance for the UK of 
combining breach of confidence cases with our you know very specific common law torts. Um, so on things like unlawful means conspiracy and the misuse of private information. And I think that's that's very interesting because it may uh, demonstrate a divergence from in particular European cases related to breach of confidence. Obviously, we had the benefit of the Trade Secrets Directive and the regulations implementing that in the UK, which harmonised things to an extent. But we still have common law and, and different common law torts. And it'd be interesting to see whether the kind of application of the common law torts will will show us in practice that end result for a very similar set of facts could be very different in the UK compared to other EU jurisdictions or not. Jason, it's no surprise that Brexit will be one of the biggest things to come next year. What's your take on the next 12 months for UK IP practitioners? It will be a very interesting year um, for lawyers um, all through the UK, um, given the changes and consequences of that. Jurisdiction and enforcement is going to be a very big one. Obviously, intellectual property rights are territorial in nature. Those that are infringing, infringing them can be in any, any number of different countries. But I think it'll be very interesting, depending on the kind of rules in relation to international reci- reciprocation between countries, where we land on jurisdiction and actual enforcement once you get that court ruling in various ways. I think also the second point on that is subsistence. So uh, where are we going to land? I, I can imagine there's going to be a number of interesting legal issues um, for IP nerds out there on what happens on whether certain, for example, database rights exist or not once the UK exits the EU. So I think that it would be interesting, yeah. Um, it would be interesting to get back in court in person, definitely. Um, but also very interesting from an academic perspective to see what happens. And just finally, are there any developments or IP changes next year that you're looking at, which you feel our listeners should be paying attention to? This is quite specific, but I think actually it has quite wide application and that's in relation to artificial intelligence and its application to intellectual property. If listeners may have seen that the UK IPO closed its consultation very recently, 13th of November, for views on how IP law policy should or could change or stay the same in relation to intellectual property. And it's obviously a very key point right now. What do we do? Um, How do we change our systems or not uh, to cater for the use of AI and application to data sets, databases, dealing with the value um, that's either created or used in various ways? I think that is something definitely to watch for next year. Um, Consultation just closed and obviously there's wider efforts looking at policy in this area as well. The World Intellectual Property Organization recently had a second session policy and AI. So I think next year we'll start to see the emergence of policy proposals, whether we should have exceptions, whether the licensing should be promoted in certain ways, whether value should be sent back to database owners whose works are used by AI systems. I think those are all really interesting questions which um, we'll start to see the emergence of next year. That's it from us today and for this year. It's been tough, but hopefully we've made it to 2021. We couldn't have done it without you, our listeners and our readers. And we thank you for your continuing support and thank you for listening. Be sure to check out intellectualpropertymagazine.com as we'll be continuing our quality content in 2021 and hopefully beyond. Thank you and please stay safe.